0: Thank you very much for joining us today for the first of the Spectator Conference Fringes. Thanks to Drax for making this possible. And today we're going to be asking the question, can green growth supercharge the north? Now, will the green agenda really create new jobs, or will the cost of net zero dampen economic growth? It's a question we're hearing asked a lot, and I think we know that reaching net zero will demand record spending across the UK's infrastructure and economy, but could decarbonisation help drive regional economic growth? Um, reinventing towns and cities as hubs for low-carbon technology and if so what balance do we need to strike between private companies, the government, business, central government to make this possible to make the most of it and we'll also be talking about the potential net-zero bill. Now to discuss all this I'm happy to be joined by a brilliant panel today. We have Will Gardner CEO of Drax, Jake Berry who's chair of the Northern Research Group and founder of a new slogan Famous. still getting in trouble. I'm already in trouble. You can say it. Jake has uh, gone viral today by talking about woking from home. It's uh, so, <laughs> oh, a, a, sort of a, a new Tory buzz White phrase, apparently. <laughs> Maybe we'll get more. Tim <laughs> Afalami, Chair for the Parliamentary Renewable and Sustainable Energy Group. Siobhan Havilland, Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce. And Ben Houchin, of course, the Tees Valley Mayor. To begin with, I'm just going to get each of our panel to give us two to three minutes opening remarks. I'm going to go to a couple of questions, and then we're going to take some audience questions, and this will all be done by 2 p.m. So to kick us off, can we start with Will?
1: Thank you, Katie, and, and thank you all for coming, and it's a, it's a great pleasure and honor for us to be uh, hosting this event. And I guess my emphatic answer to that question, which is can green growth supercharge the North, is absolutely yes. Right. My two minutes, a few words about Drax and what we've done, and then just a few minutes on an idea of how we could actually achieve that supercharged growth. So Drax has been at the heart of the UK energy system for almost 50 years, uh, having started operating in 1974. And, you know, it's been a major force in its community, you know, big supporter of jobs in the Selby area, and sort of like a key cornerstone of the whole UK power system, right? Over the last 15 years, we've transformed the power station from using coal to using sustainable biomass. And we're now, you know, other than a couple of days when we've had to run coal in the last few weeks, because the system has been very tight, uh, we're effectively a purely renewable power company. And if we think about the next phase in this growth, I, I was, I was uh, struck, I was at, a, at a, one of the panels this morning, and someone asked the question, you know, how do you avoid the so-called agglomeration effect Around London, You know, all the people are there, more people come. It's sort of it's a positive sort of network. Of act. How do you counteract that, right? And I think a very specific answer to that question is, if we put carbon capture and storage infrastructure into the East Coast cluster, and Ben and I think you should have, all of us here share the sort of interest in that, and the government actually builds carbon capture and storage infrastructure, let's say, from Drax through the Humber, into the T et etc. that infrastructure can enable you know, heavy industry in the area to to remain and and actually preserve significant existing jobs, as much as many as 50,000, we think. It also can enable the next generation of jobs. I mean, the UK has been super successful around offshore wind, but carbon capture can be the next area in which the UK is a global leader. So that physical infrastructure, which has to be in a specific place, it can be in the north and actually can actually help both preserve and create next generation jobs. And what we want to do at Drax, which is to be part of that, and I'll just give a short advertisement for what we're we're up to, is actually add to our biomass carbon capture and storage so that we will permanently remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And if you think about where we are in this whole question of how do we get to net zero, how do we deliver one and a half degrees of climate change, it's not going to be enough to just reduce emissions. We have to start removing. And I think there's going to be a really exciting and big industry in carbon removals and the north of england can be the place where that starts so very excited about the opportunity to supercharge growth
0: thanks well
2: jake well thank you very much and if you haven't been to drax go because it's absolutely awesome to see how it has transitioned from a dirty coal (laughs) polluting power station to one which now is so green that it's got trees burning in it Um, but um, (laughs) it is an amazing thing and I think it is demonstrating (laughs) how we in the north are at the forefront of the green industrial revolution and of course for us that's nothing new because we were at the forefront of the first, second, third and fourth industrial revolution and now we're leading the green industrial revolution and why that's important to northern communities is because post-deindustrialisation, many of these communities are in desperate need of highly paid, secure, long-term jobs. And what we know is that this industry won't just serve our country for a decade or even a few decades. It will serve us for a lifetime. So ensuring that those green-collar jobs are across the north is a great way of levelling up and hopefully at zero cost to the taxpayer. And that's why I was so pleased to see the new commitment from the Prime Minister earlier today about ensuring that by 2035, all of our energy in the UK comes from renewable resources. But in order to get there, we have some massive challenges ahead of us. And of course, the North and our highly skilled workforce can help deliver against those challenges. The biggest challenge I would say we have at the moment is twofold. First of all, that the grid infrastructure in the UK is set up for large producers like Drax and other power stations to keep the base load on the grid. And of course, green production of energy does tend to be at a smaller scale, more peripatetic around our country. So how do we fix the national grid to make it fit for the future? And then the final thing I'd say is the challenge around that base load. It's absolutely clear to me that you cannot baseload the grid, which, by the way, if we don't, the entire thing turns off. It takes a mere 14 days to get it going again. If we don't baseload the grid, then we're going to have big trouble, and that's why I absolutely believe, as well as brilliant businesses like Drax, which produces a significant baseload for the grid, we need to be prioritising new nuclear. Moorside in Cumbria, Wilver Eworth, on Anglesey and others, but prioritising new nuclear it been an absolutely vital component of that green industrial revolution across the North.
0: Thanks, Jake.
3: Thank you. Now, um, I'm a Southern MP. I uh, regard myself as an honorary Northerner because I did live on the Wirral oh. when I was very small, though nobody believes me when they hear me speak, as none of you clearly do. Um, but, 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 but what I would, what I would say from a, from a Southern MP's perspective, but I'm thinking about the whole country, is that it's absolutely critical. This agenda is completely right. I agree with everything Jake said. Wind power, nuclear energy in particular, significant opportunities to re parts of this country that had effectively been de-industrialised since the 70s and 80s. I think that's a huge opportunity that all of us can see, and I know the Prime Minister the Government fully and the Conservative Party supports that. But there is a broader reason why this matters. It's not just economically beneficial in that sense. Resilience our economic and energy resilience is improved if we can produce more of our own energy in this country. And, you know, the the current difficulties, everybody can appreciate that relying on, you know, Putin to be nice to us, allowing gas to come over is not the greatest long-term sustainable outcome for our energy mix. What we need is to produce more of our own energy in this country combined with uh, high-skilled jobs ...that gives huge economic benefit and security and resilience... ...to individuals and families in parts of the country... ...that have not had that sort of investment. It's critical. And from a southern perspective, this works for us as well. This isn't the sort of case of, oh, we're giving something to the north... ...and, you know, in the south we haven't got anything. Frankly, the people in my constituency who do things like... ...their lawyers or their bankers or various other things... ...or their accountants... ...they are working just as much on this agenda as the person putting in the nuclear power station or the new wind turbine. This is a cross-country effort. It's cross-regional. We can all benefit from this. And, look, it's not going to be done in the term of this parliament. It's not necessarily going to be done even just by this government alone. Uh, We've begun. Let us continue. This is a generational uh, moment, and we need to seize it.
2: Yeah.
4: Brilliant. Siobhan? Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm normally loud enough, but... Oh, that's good. Uh, for those of you who haven't come across the Chambers of Commerce, we, the British Chambers of Commerce, represent the 53 accredited chambers across the country, from the tip of Scotland to the bottom of Cornwall, from Northern Ireland, and across to East Anglia. We in Westminster represent their collective voice into government and the media, and our best kept secret is we also have. A network of 75 and counting international chambers from all over the world, which speaks to our uh, capability in trade as an organisation. So, great to be here. Uh, Clearly, green growth very much high up on our agenda, and we're delighted to be working with, with Drax in the north, helping them build their supply chain through our local chambers, and our CEO of our Alan Humber Chamber is here too, so we are well represented we're working on a number of areas with our members so on the net zero transition they basically tell us that about 10% of them have even started to measure their carbon footprint which shows a there's a big concern about lack of understanding lack of awareness but the biggest barrier you won't be surprised to know is cost so they're worried about what it's going to cost them never mind trying to sort out my cash flow and sales coming out of this pandemic. So we're working on a number of things. We have launched in the last month the Net Zero Hub. So this is a place where they can go to get the right information, to see what their peers are doing, and to work out how to take the next steps on the the Net Zero transition. We will be COP26 in Glasgow. We have a business lounge for four days in Glasgow College, which is uh, significant because I'll come to skills in a second, so... Please come and join us there with some focus on green trade because, you know, on the flip side of net zero, what we really see and are helping our businesses do is work in the area of green innovation. So for me, that's the flip side. What's the upside, the growth, the innovation? And that's where investment is crucial. So we're working with a lot of our financial partners to help them find organisations in our network that are looking for investment or loans or access to finance to help them really focus on that. This morning I met the team from Heathrow who are really excited about sustainable airline fuel future net zero where they will be investing in plants across the north to build that regional connectivity we need across our transportation infrastructure system. So it's all about getting on the front foot now, helping businesses with that transition, but really helping align them uh, around investment and the skills they need to realise that transition and that investment for the future. Thank you. Brilliant, thanks. And finally, Ben.
5: Thank you very much, Casey. I mean, the question of can green growth supercharge north, the answer is already it is. Not will it it in the future or can it, it absolutely is. I'm going to take you down history lane here, so in the next couple of minutes you'll all be amateur historians on Teesside. But Teesside was founded, Middlesbrough was founded, on iron ore found under the Cleveland Hills. We created iron and that moved into the steel industry and we built the world. We built the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Shard, the steel that went into the Burj Khalifa and indeed if you go into the Cabinet Wall Rooms next to the Treasury, you'll see Dorman Long stamped in steel, across there. That's what we've delivered to the world. And now we're in a really interesting place that I know many of you people in this room will recognise this phrase. side is delivering the circular economy. We've seen the decline, unfortunately, of steelmaking in Teesside. We've seen what that's done to the local economy in the devastation of losing three and a half thousand jobs. And I often say that Teesside's actually done very well in decarbonising its local economy by more than 50% in the last six years. But it's very easy to do when you put three and a half thousand people out of jobs and you do destroy local economies. So we need to green our economy. We need to transition to decarbonize what we're doing, not just in the north of England, but the whole of the UK. And we can be a world leader in this. We can develop the R&D. We can develop the innovation right here, exporting it across the world but we need to do so in a very managed way and actually the old technologies in the heavy industry of yesteryear are informing the future technologies of today and tomorrow those people that worked in the steelworks those people that worked in oil and gas are now working in CCUS, they're working in hydrogen they're particularly working in things like offshore wind and when i say that the green economy is already delivering for the north of england just In four weeks' time, we'll be putting the first spade in the ground to deliver the new offshore wind blade factory for GE, something that will create 2,000 jobs. You know, that's more jobs created on one investment than we saw lost when the steelworks closed. 1,800 people directly employed. More than 2,000 are going to be employed in a GE factory. And it's not just Teesside. Look to the Humber. We have a great partnership with the team at Drax the Northern Endurance Partnership, the CCUS project that we'll see in Teesside take more than 10 million tonnes of carbon out of the atmosphere, the equivalent of 3 million homes, directly connecting in with the Humber that are doing the same thing. This isn't just about isolationism, even on a regional basis. It's about post-industrial areas coming together. And actually, for the first time in a long time, right... Us in the regions actually having the answers that we can give to government. It's no longer the centre telling us what to do. We've got the solutions that we can deliver to the rest of the country. But I just want to finish, because I think this will come up more and more as the conversation goes on. The cost of net zero is something we need to get under control. And I actually believe that there are much more savvy ways that we can manage government policy. One, to reduce the risk of taxpayers' money going into subsidising what will ultimately be failed technologies. That's something the government and we should always guard against for the taxpayer. But also, how do we unleash the private sector? What certainty can can we give in regulation? What certainty can we give to not just the construction companies, but to finance houses across the world to be able to plough billions of pounds into the UK economy? And I think there are sectors... That are completely untapped we've seen that china have accrued approximately 75 percent of the supply chain when it comes to electric battery technology but there are other sectors in ccus in hydrogen in particular that we could become the world lead we could develop not just the construction jobs not just the workers on the ground but some extremely high skilled jobs that we could be exporting british technology again to the rest of the world as jake rightly says in the fourth industrial revolution
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. And a nice segue to talk about the cost of net zero. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe start with um, you, Jake. You've obviously spoken a lot about the levelling up agenda. And when we're talking about levelling up and net zero, two uh, you know, flagship thanks of the government's agenda. But often people think they do you know, potentially contradict or clash. They can work together. So do you worry about the cost of net zero? Um,
2: I agree with Ben's comments that delivering net zero goes hand in hand with creating a growing north economy and i think there are huge opportunities for us to to be the vanguard really in leading that recovery of the north economy so i'll give you another example we have loads of disused cove coal fields across the uk why don't we have a mineral strategy national mineral strategy which is about exploiting the opportunities for those coal fields whether it's in carbon capture and storage whether it's in district heating using subterranean heating systems we should have a national strategy that looks at those communities in county durham and in lee in greater manchester across the uk former coal mining communities say in south wales how can you lead this industrial revolution in green technology look on the cost of it i think there's a bit of a pinch point coming from the government towards the government i don't if i'm honest know what the answer to it is everyone thinks this is a a great agenda, it absolutely is. We've got to look at ways of improving our planet and leaving our kids a better planet than we were born on. That all seems great until you go, well, you need to change your boiler, or you need to buy a really expensive electric vehicle that you probably can't afford. So I think there is a bit of a point. I don't know how the government's going to deal with that, whether it will be through subsidies on vehicles or boilers or whatever, but I do think we've got a sort of... Fess up to the fact that it will be many of the red wall communities who are least able to afford these changes that we're making.
0: So, do you think perhaps the government will have to step in to blunt that?
2: Well, you know, I, I, I simply—I don't think we know because we don't know enough about what's going to happen. I'm not sort of avoiding the question. I'm saying say I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> but what I would say is this: is that I think a lot of the interventions the government has made haven't been hugely helpful. So I take the battery vehicle uh, determination of the government. My own personal view is that hydrogen is absolutely the fuel of the future, something Ben's done a huge amount of work on Teesside, the first commercial production of hydrogen in the UK in the 1940s, you know, an amazing accolade for Teesside. Because the government has done this dash to battery, it has skewed all of the development programmes of Jaguar Land Rover, Volkswagen, Vauxhall, Astro, all of these guys say we must have battery vehicles. In truth, you can't have a battery HGV. You've got to have a hydrogen HGV. We're falling 10 years behind the United States, which is going straight for hydrogen, skipping batteries altogether. So I don't think the government's policies, they sometimes skew the market. The market needs to fix net zero, and actually maybe the government should think about stepping back.
0: Well... What do you think, when we're talking about, I suppose, who should be, I think I touched on, who should be responsible for supercharging jar- the North, you know, is, is, should it be government-led or is Jacob a point that actually perhaps this should be left more to industry or devolved figures? Or
1: no, I think, I think, if I sort of think about two different sides of the whole question of how, how do you sort of make this happen, right? So the first one is, you know, be, there will be new industries, new jobs, and the government can play a great role... And actually prov- providing a framework that will incentivize the private sector to invest in those things. Right? So, in the same way that they provided you know, CFDs for offshore wind, mm. and effectively that meant that people could invest in offshore wind, they had a, a guaranteed price from the government. It was expensive at the beginning, no question, but every generation that cost came down. And it's sort of a classic case of how government support can help technology come down over time. And I think with CCUS, the same thing will happen. So, if the government supports, the new jobs and the new industries in creative ways like that, and there's a good roadmap or framework to use what they've done before to do that. I think that's the sort of first thing I would say. Then the next question about you know, how does it get paid for, I think is a sort of in some ways a separate question. right? And you, I mean, you can't expect, for example, you know, all of the green cost of energy to go on to the household bill. Right? I mean, it gets to be too much. And so then you have to sort of say, well, how can we you know, share that cost across the economy in other ways, right? and that actually people, you know, people are more capable of of handling that. So there's a real balance between how do we create jobs, and I think there's really interesting ways that the government has used in the past that we can use again uh, to get you know, industry to actually get excited about investing. And then the other point I would make is that you know, long-term certainty for business is a huge thing, right? So if, if we, I'm actually very encouraged with the whole way that the carbon capture cluster program is going, and I know people might be surprised, but the government started working on this about three years ago. You know, they are working on business models about how the you know private and public sectors would work together, you know. And in the East Coast cluster, you know, Ben and I are involved in this. There's, I think there are sixty big companies, you know, BP, Equinor, Shell, Drax, you know, you know National Grid, putting you know serious money and projects behind this already, right? So I'm super encouraged. I mean, I would hate to see it not happen because that would be a really sort of devastating. But one of the things that that will allow is that we can actually start building the supply chain here, right? because these projects probably won't start getting built until 2024. If we have certainty now, three years in advance, and we made a commitment to have 80% of the materials used to build our project to be sourced in the UK, and we can do that if we have that long-term certainty. So I'm, I'm quite hopeful that we're a, on a good track here.
0: Ben?
3: I mean, it, it's clear to me that this agenda will not work in the coming years if the government imposes significant extra costs on people who cannot afford to pay them. Simple as that. Now, the next question is, how do you raise the funds in order to do that? For me, we need to specifically look at quite localised taxes that relate to environmentally damaging, carbon-intensive ways of doing things. For example, we've got a landfill tax. We should increase that landfill tax and take... By I know we could double it even we could we could significantly increase it and that extra money go to help local authorities to Im- invest and improve in local recycling for example I just use that as an example but we are going to need to raise funds in order to make sure that people do not lose out on this transition I don't think that raising general taxation from the centre is always going to be the answer to that because frankly you're not you you you, you create a bunch of other problems around how governments and private sector work together but i think that we are going to have to make sure that individuals are protected from this because that is i think the biggest medium term risk to this whole agenda is people who can afford it saying to others look you know you've got to go green and people can't afford it i think that's so important and i agree with everything that has been said around the government setting strong commitments and legal Uh, aims so that the private sector can invest underneath it. Because the free market and the private sector is the thing that will get us out of this, not the government, ultimately.
0: Siobhan, do you you agree with that, the the
4: free market? So I met one of our businesses the other day. He runs an artificial intelligence business. He's really keen to get to carbon neutral, so he looked at getting energy-efficient servers and it's going to cost him £750,000. And he said to me, how am I going to pay for that? It was a tricky question, I have to be honest. So what do we think? We think that it's hard to see how SMEs are going to move forward on this without some sort of incentive, nudge, tax break, something. It is really hard to see. Or we go to our financial institutions and see if they can use their balance sheets to to support it. Uh, Or, you know, there's our our big corporates, we've already talked about this, and, and their supply chains. But it's very hard to see how the SMEs of our nation are going to do this on their own. Having said that, where we do see concerted effort, so if you take our East Lancashire Chamber, for example, they have set up a thing called the Low Carbon Skills Academy. First of its type... They are now building an amazing cluster. So they've got lab jobs, build bacteria that tackles pollution. They've got, they've doubled the production of heat pumps uh, in the area and they have just secured a multi-million pound, whether you like like them or not, electric vehicle battery operation. So you you can really see where you focus on an area, you can, you know, you can really make a difference. But I would say, Katie, ultimately, I, I mean, I'm not, SMEs are telling us, they are telling us they don't know how they are going to pay for the transition to net zero. And and Ben, I'll just bring you in at that point.
5: I think one of the biggest problems we face with the energy transition, because the transition is is essential to this. It can't happen overnight if you want to protect existing jobs and allow certainly the SME sector to be able to, to transition without it costing a huge amount of money. The ultimate problem started five or six years ago when the civil service and the government decided that the future was electric. That's fundamentally the problem i think that's what jake was just saying there as well so every decision ever taken since is to reinforce the decision that electric is the future that started in motor technology for the automotive sector we've seen it more recently in what i think is a pretty bizarre move towards trying to put heat pumps into every single home in the country when they're three times more expensive and actually i think more than a third of homes just can't accommodate them you know, you're now getting to bad policy making because of a decision that was taken years ago. And what you've actually got is a civil service that is refusing to move with the evidence as the evidence changes. Now, that's not to say that electricity doesn't have a key role to play in this. As an output, I mean, when you have hydrogen, in effect, you have an electric motor that hydrogen runs off. So electricity is going to play a role. It's going to play a role in automotive. But actually, what it's doing at the minute and what government policy is doing is it's squeezing out other technologies. And what we should be doing as a government is being more agnostic, on the technology, but setting a regulatory framework that allows for certainty by the private sector. Now, a specific example of this for me is hydrogen. I'm a convert to hydrogen. I'll declare an interest in hydrogen. I think it is absolutely the future and plays a much larger role than people actually think. I believe that hydrogen in the home for heating in the home as a replacement to natural gas is at some point going to be the future when people realise that reality is going to come into conflict with what current government policy is. It is scientific fact and evidence based that you can pump 100% hydrogen into the existing gas network. There is a transition going on up until 2032 where they're replacing in effect the old copper and iron piping with plastic piping. But once that happens in 2032 something like 95 96% of the whole grid can, 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 can accommodate 100% hydrogen. Now, if you go to Bosch, just pick them out. There are other good retailers available today. But if you go to Bosch, they make hydrogen-ready boilers for £100 more than a conventional boiler today. If you were to, say, set a switchover date for hydrogen in the home, 100% hydrogen, say, let's pick a number, 2040, that gives the certainty that the markets need to be able to invest. The number of investors I speak to across the world who say, We love it, we get the agenda, but are you going electric? Are you going hydrogen? Is it going to be something else? Give us some certainty so we can invest through the private sector the vast amounts of capital that we currently have. It also allows you to get on with the technology. So let's be honest, some of this technology is still in its infancy, so transitioning too quickly will cause systems to fall over, it will cost more more to the consumer. So if you have a long stop date of 2040, the cost of hydrogen will come down exponentially. You'll allow that transition through things like blue hydrogen to proper large-scale green hydrogen. There is a model that suggests that green hydrogen could be more inexpensive in relative terms to natural gas come 2040 if managed correctly. And that Bosch boiler that's 100 pounds more expensive by 2040 will be the same cost, if not arguably cheaper than a conventional boiler. So you've got no cost to the consumer if you get the regulation right. The cost of hydrogen in the network should be comparable to natural gas today. And this is where the government just needs to get smarter with its policy making and starts to have that conversation that you don't just have to throw cash and subsidy at everything. There are elements, particularly as Will has said, Through the cfd um, structures which are very productive in helping advance things like offshore wind and potentially carbon capture but we don't always have to go to that lever and i think there is there are some really important decisions that number 10 and people like quasi and others need to make that looks at smarter policy making to reduce the impact both on the subsidy from the public purse, but also is acutely aware of the cost of the consumer. And it can be done. Those solutions sit there. Those solutions sit in the north of England, in Teesside, in Cheshire and Warrington, the large chemical clusters in the UK. We've been doing this for years, if only some of the civil servants would listen and realise that electricity isn't the be-all and end-all of the decarbonisation agenda.
0: Um, now, I'm, I'm, I want to get into audience questions soon, so please get them ready. But just before I go to my final question, um, Jake, do you want to comment on that? And what do you think about Jake's point and the civil service?
2: (laughs) thank you. So, look, I I mean, I think what Ben's saying is it's why we need devolution because, in truth, decisions made at a local level with someone who, in a granular way, understands their economy will be better solutions. And I know I've worked with Ben. I did when I was Northern Powerhouse Minister. We worked together on loads of these projects. And the greatest frustration... I think we collectively shared was talking to Whitehall. They often turned a tin ear to lots of these things. They have the experts in Whitehall who, in my view, often are far from that and move around departments. An expert in energy last week may have been an expert in uh, healthcare when they're department of health or DEFRA or MOD. And in truth, that's why I think we need these locally driven <laughs> solutions and also bring industry to the table. Mm-hmm. Why are we allowing... Uh, these sort of decisions to be made without really onboarding industry and the future of policy. And, I, you know, I just I just think it's really easy. And, yes, Katie, thank you. You know, white all civil servants get back to work.
6: You're not using
0: your phrase, though. Stop woking from home,
2: OK? <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
0: Just before we um, go to audience questions, just I think we touched on it, but what I wanted to ask the panel was, when it comes to, I suppose, how the government is going to secure buy-in from companies and private sector on its agenda on net zero, and we talked about how difficult that transition can be, particularly if you're a smaller business. What does the panel think? Does that should be should be a carrot stick approach, or is it just simply certainty? You know, not having confused uh, you know guidance about what might be coming up the track. Perhaps if
4: we could start with Siobhan. So, Katie, back to your question. Yeah, it, it is a very it's a very good question. We. Uh, Sorry to be dull, but probably a bit of both. So, definitely a bit of carrot. We have to, to kickstart SMEs along the journey, and it's, a, it's currently a very big obstacle to get past when you're worrying about cash flow and investment and the fact that you can't hire any staff at the moment, never mind the staff you might need to move to net zero transition. Setting the framework, which I think maybe comes under the stick part two, maybe nudging rather than hitting with a large stick and setting, and setting the policy bit, you know, back to the jet zero. So there is clearly, on moving towards sustainable airline fuel, two policy needs. One's a framework and one's that one's set, sets some pricing regulation, which indicates to the market that that's, you know, there's a market there for the next 20 years. So I think a really clever thought through combination of those things is the right way to go and I would say this wouldn't I but Whitehall listening to business you know it's relatively easy for Whitehall to listen to big business because there's not that many of them it's hard for them to meet all the SMEs of of our nation but you know come on out and come to our chambers. We are always happy to host and come and meet our members because there is nothing like hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. Thank you. Ben?
3: Well, to go back on what Jake Berry said, the real core of this is around devolution. It's about who takes responsibility for making those key decisions. I happen to agree that you know, leaders like Ben are fantastic in their area. He will know much more than anybody in Whitehall Uh, about how to deal with his economy. But here's the rub. It is going to require more money to be raised locally. The difficulty is we can't say we want more devolution and then expect the centre just to give more money to local councils. That is just not going to be sustainable. There needs to be a way of raising more money locally so that then that local area can almost develop its own levers and its own capacity to do the sort of things. Now... There are some parts of the country that will be able to do that and there's the the real drive on doing that and I suspect the Tees Valley is one of them. There'll be others that won't or, or, or don't wish to and I think that that is where the difficulty will come and it's how does central government give enough national regulatory oversight and framework that allows both local leaders to take granular decisions but also the parts of the country that say don't have mayors so I think of Hertfordshire my own county you know we don't have mayor we have a more traditional district county council structure that also enables those much smaller local authorities with fewer energy needs in, in the same sort of way to make those decisions as well because when you get to the core of this money and who raises it and who levies it on whom is the absolute key part of this and we shouldn't forget that Ben what did you say to that?
5: Well, I think you've just got to simplify it. That As any business, what do you care about when you're looking at this transition? One is cost. What's it going to cost me as a business? That's money that they could spend on something else, employing more people, new innovation. Is there an additional cost to us? The more it's going to cost us than it otherwise would have cost us means that we are less competitive. That's the second point. Are we more competitive? Are we less competitive? We're not even just talking in a UK sphere here. Let's not forget. We're talking in a global sphere, especially around energy production, obviously with the advent of more and more interconnectors. We're looking at gas pipelines from... Russia, you've obviously got the Chinese who are looking at things like battery technology. We've also got to make sure that we don't make our own businesses, UK domestic businesses, less competitive. Because, let's be honest, we are absolutely leading the world on the decarbonisation agenda in lots of different technologies. But if a company in North America or Africa can buy the same car for a fraction of the price from the Far East because they don't have the same standards, regulations, or actually don't care as much about the supply chain deregulation – then we can't put ourselves at a disadvantage. And as a business, with lots of these businesses, certainly the larger energy generation ones, they're looking at internationally mobile capital, making sure that they can remain competitive. So we also can't just hamstring businesses, so we've got to be aware of that. But also, let's see if we can find the opportunity for that same business. Are there additional revenue streams that come from that? Are there new opportunities that we can capture, like we're saying on the R&D side, to be able to do it? So I think we've got to be careful on the regulatory timeline horizon. So it's great having a 2050 target, but with every day that passes, we've got another target for 2035 and then something for 2030. And you've got to be careful to allow the space for the business and the private sector, both finance and delivery models, to be able to develop the technology, test it, and then commercialize it. We can't do that overnight, which is why the transition is so important. And the reason the transition is so important is, I'll go back to Teesside again, we employ 5,500 people in the chemical and processing industry. That is the reason we are still the second-largest carbon-emitting region in the country. It's the same in Grangemouth, Cheshire and Warrington. We have large chemical and processing employers employing thousands of people. Now, if you go down the line of a carbon tax too quickly, if you start to make them uncompetitive will close down so this isn't also about the new jobs of the future the fourth industrial revolution new technology it's also about protecting thousands of jobs that currently exist in red wall areas that's a pride of place that people already have and if you want to destroy the net zero agenda tomorrow it's making those businesses uncompetitive costing those jobs to real people real livelihoods less money in their pockets and then we might as well pack up and go home because unless you take people with you this isn't gonna work
0: Um, Will, can I just bring you in on that? So just looking at, I think, um, if we're talking about, you know, if you move too fast, what do you think industry needs in order to make this, you know, make this work? Does it need more certainty from the government, or is it actually about...?
1: um, I I, I agree with all the things that have been said. I mean, I think the, the, the phrase that Ben used there, you know, if you move too quickly, is a key one, right? I mean, so I remember when I sort of, just before I first joined Drax, you know, a couple of things the government did. Very quickly. So, for example, we were you know moving forward with a carbon capture project at the time called White Rose, and then sort of in a budgetary decision, boom, all of a sudden cancelled, right? And with, you know without a lot of engagement, without a lot of sort of warning, there was you know another tax move that sort of from day one to day two took about you know impacted us very badly. So, when you move too quickly, equally for businesses, equally for you know for people you know, for workers, that's that's tricky, right? Whereas you give people time to adjust, I mean I think one of the things I think is interesting about you know the UK, which is you know, the, we've come off coal in the power system over the course of, I don't know, five, ten years. It has been, you know, wrenching change for, you know, communities that depended on those coal-fired power stations. But if you compare it to, let's say, what's happening in Germany, where right, they just can't, they can't get it to happen, right? I mean, but there's been good engagement, good cooperation between government and business. So I, I think it is workable. Okay. Um, and especially, again, if, if there's, you know, in addition to the, you know, recognizing that when there are people who are going to be, you know, who aren't going to benefit from the change that there are plans in place to help them, right? You know, what is the way you transition? How do we get those guys and gals new jobs? So I think that a lot of this is about engagement, and it is about certainty, and it's also about you know, being re- realistic about time. Because businesses like certainty, and they don't like surprises, right?
0: Now, let's go to questions. So if everybody could raise their hand, I'm gonna take three questions at a time. Have you got glamorous microphone assistant? Yep. Uh, microphone <laughs> assistant. <laughs> um, Okay, so can we, um, the man with the nice tie Um, Everyone's got a nice tie, okay. Who's going to take take credit for that? (laughs) Uh, it's It's a
6: nice red tie. There's four billion pounds of subsidy, four billion pounds of subsidy being received by Drax over the years. It's burning 25 million trees a year. So it's got a huge lobbying effort to try and protect its, uh, its subsidies. Four billion pounds of subsidies is absolutely huge. So I'm, my question is, how much is, the, is Drax uh, paying the spectator to keep it silent on this?
0: Thank you. And then let's go for the man with the glamorous tie um, further forward.
6: Thank you. Siobhan asked how SMEs would pay for all the, the transition... There were a number of solutions, but I used one through a Carbon Trust loan a few years ago. Took two hugely inefficient oil boilers out and converted them to biomass. Brought a quarter of a million from Carbon Trust. And the pellets and the cost of the loan were cheaper than the oil and now paid off. And we're, laugh- we're laughing all the way to the banks so to suggest a solution. What do the panel think about potentially introducing a green energy bond? So if you need to replace your boiler with a hydrogen one, Ben, or, or um, air source heat pump, the money could be made available from the private sector. They get a return on it. and As long as the end user is getting it more cheaply than they would otherwise have have borrowed at, well, everyone's happy, and the government doesn't have to subsidise anything. Okay, so
0: pumps, and then
4: uh, this lady.
0: Also glamorous. (laughs) Thank
4: you. Hello, Thelma Mattett from St. Coalfield. We've heard a lot about cost, but assuming we're now at 2035, what does the panel... I think Ben mentioned uh, bringing everybody along on this journey. But what do the panel believe will be the impact on the householder's energy bills as a result of all this green growth? Uh, would we see a 50% reduction in our energy costs, 20%? Or is the uh, belief we're going to have yet more increase? Because that's a really important point that consumers need to, be, need, need to know about. Yeah, and is that from... Are you saying, is that when we get to
0: 2035? Yeah. Okay. And we'll take one more question for now. Um, I think we'll this man at the front. And then we'll come to this side after.
6: Ian Kelly, Holland Humber Chamber of Commerce, and uh, the biggest dirty cluster in the UK, I think, even bigger than right. uh, Teesside. But uh, <laughs> my remarks would be more about long-termism and consistency of policy... I think you've done a very good job up in Teesside in giving personality profile to the agenda that that you're operating on. And if I may say, Jake, you've been a bad example because you were a first-class northern powerhouse minister, but you've now been replaced by several successors whose names I can't remember. And I think if the prime minister could be encouraged just to keep ministers in situ for a while to bed down good policies that do build a consensus and businesses can then follow, because as uh, uh, Will is building that at Drax around the Humber in terms of supply chain options for carbon zero, not quite there yet with one big company on the South Bank, but if there is a strong, clear policy lead from government consistently advocated by people whose faces people begin to recognise and understand, I think that does help the private sector to follow the government agenda, which isn't confused and mixed. Because over my experience of many years, government policy, uh, there isn't just one, there's lots of them. They all can clash and uh, uh, confuse each other and overlap each other, and uh, that is as much the problem uh, as is good consistency and... Uh, clear people and messages, getting uh, a single line out to the business community.
0: Great, thank you. So we've got sub- subsidies, pumps, energy bills in 2035. If we're looking at that new target, and then uh, is the you know the merry-go-round of ministers actually just confusing this message? We obviously have just had a
3: another reshuffle.
0: Bim, do you want to start by picking up a few points on that?
3: Um, I'll Take leave the question pick. about Drax to them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on Thanks, on bro. the yeah on green bonds make sense but it's not in and of itself a panacea the key thing is that you know the policy side and all the other things we've been talking about lend other things that do the heavy lifting but by all means we should do much more of that and also we should do those at local level and regional level as well household energy bills fascinating point ultimately what goes into the household energy bill is is, is slightly movable feast part of it depends on how much extra cost the government chooses to put on the energy bill rather than take off. We could increase that, reduce it, it sort of depends. But what I do know is if we get large-scale nuclear increased in the mix of energy, that stability to the baseload energy it will give will be better for lower energy bills over the medium-long term, certainly by 2035, because the alternative for that is a lot worse. And in relation to longer-term sort of thinking and, and ministers... now. It's, it's my sense that what is more important, though it's very helpful to have good ministers in place for a long time, that's of course correct. What is more important is that you just get the right policy. And when you see things like the Green Homes grant that was well-intentioned but poorly executed, that's the problem. It's not actually any individual minister's fault. It was the fact that the whole attitude of Whitehall was to over-specify, over-manage, over-intervene in what could have been a simpler, clearer set of instructions that the private sector could have got behind and developed a supply chain with. That's ultimately probably more important than per se the ministers, though of course having good people in place for a long time is
2: always better than the alternative.
0: Brilliant, thank you. Jake, bring you in.
2: Well, I just want to pick up on BIM's uh, final comment about long-term policy. The challenge with energy, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure what the energy policy is at the moment. It seems to be ever-changing. And the challenge with energy policies, it seems to suffer from governmentitis. So the government has a good idea, then it has another good idea, then it has another good idea, and you put them all together and it all just becomes quite a bad idea. I'm a conservative. I believe in small government. I think what we should do is set out long-term goals and then let ingenuity, engineering, the private sector, work out how to hit those goals. And i give you one example, I was sat in the tea room of the House of Commons and things that are said in the tea room of the House of Commons almost have a confessional seal on them. I was sat next to a, a minister who was an energy minister who was telling me, oh, well, you know, the thing is my civil servant said, battery storage doesn't work. It's not the right technology for the UK. Battery storage does not work. At the same time, I was reading in a national newspaper an announcement on the New York Stock Exchange of a company called Pacific Green Energy, which has just done three battery storage projects in Kent, Now, the market knows that battery storage works, but the government thinks that it doesn't. And I think that's the problem of the government experts constantly, like the badgers moving the goalposts, I think we used to say, didn't we? But constantly moving the goalposts, distorts the market. This is going to be a market-led solution. Let the government set the parameters and then let ingenuity lead the way to net zero.
0: Jake, just um, on, the, on the question on energy bills, can I just pick you up on that? Because we're talking about a lot about cost of living at this conference. Um, you've been speaking about the levelling up agenda, and I just wondered, what do you think
2: is going to happen with energy bills once we get to this agenda? So, Well, in the, they're going up, right? <laughs> they are going up at the moment, and I think that shows how things like the energy price cap doesn't work. When Ed Miliband proposed an energy price cap, loyal conservative members of parliament stood up and said this is a terrible idea this is going to distort the market this is going to get rid of competition in the market look at igloo look at all these companies that have gone bust it's exactly we were right the first time government intervention through things like price caps doesn't work We're conservatives we know it we say it but when it comes to it we get tempted to implement these sort of policies that's wrong i think because of the government's agenda energy prices are going to go up. Look, In the long term, Ben is absolutely right. So there's a trial at the moment to put 30%, Ben will correct me if I'm wrong, hydrogen in people's gas supply in an area of the country. It was in the papers yesterday actually saying that if you refuse to take the hydrogen, you'll have your gas cut off. But no one in truth will even notice. So we could get rid of 30% of our reliance on gas that we import from Russia and other countries by replacing it with hydrogen, And no one would even notice. And really interestingly, in the UAE, the government of Sharjah, which is responsible for the entire waste collection for the UAE, has entered into an MOU with a hydrogen company based in Nottingham here in the UK to put 30% hydrogen, syngas as they call it, into airliner fuel to fuel airlines. So Ben is right. Hydrogen is the future. Look at Joe Biden's first domestic policy speech on the environment. What did he talk about? Batteries? No, hydrogen. They are skipping battery technologies. Hydrogen is the future. T side is the future.
0: Right. At this point, I'm just going to. Sorry, I didn't mean to re-in the applause. There, I'm going to bring. Go on, in on, Ben, I think he needs a no, round the applause. He's not. <laughs> um, I'm going to bring in Will, and then we'll go to Ben.
1: No, thanks, Katie. And just to, to answer your questions, I mean, the first thing I would say is that you know, Drax, you know, clearly benefits from subsidies for renewable power, you know, as do wind. Offshore wind providers, as do solar providers, um, you know. And effectively, what the government said, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we want to move to net zero, and we want renewable power, and they put in place a system to enable that, right? And we are, you know, part of that system, and so we now, you know, produce about you know 11 percent of the UK's renewable power, um, as as other players do as well. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that there are very clear and strict standards about what types of wood we can use and what types of agricultural materials we have to take. Wood that comes from growing forests. For those of you who don't know, and there's lots of, you know, there's not a lot of good information coming out about this. But we don't, we don't know. Drax doesn't chop down any trees. No one does. To make pellets, we use offcuts. We use residuals from sawmills. We use byproducts of forest, other forest products industries to uh, to get the fiber that we use. For our fuel, So effectively, and it's all very strictly regulated and certified by Ofgem in order for us to, you know, to get that subsidy, which I just described, right? So the UK has been very effective at putting in place a biomass power industry, which is a significant contributor to the UK's decarbonization agenda. And we're now, I think, the most interesting thing in some ways is that now we're on the brink of actually having one of the most, if not the most, cost-effective way of permanently removing CO2 from the atmosphere, right? Now, we can do that for significantly less than any other technology, and, and that's on the back of what we've already built. So, I think a really exciting opportunity for us.
0: So, and I'm conscious of time, so I'm just going to bring in a final round of questions and go straight to Ben and Siobhan. And uh, if there's anything they want to get um, from the previous question, they get it in. So, if there's any final question you want to be asked, okay, let's go to um, the man at the back and the man at the front on this side.
6: Hi there, thank you very much for the question. As I understand it from what we've been saying, that one of the key technologies here is carbon capture and storage. Whether we're going for hydrogen, whether we're using biomass, that we are putting out CO2. So it's a question of what we do with the CO2. You know, to make hydrogen, we need natural gas, and CO2 is a byproduct. So if the key technology is cap- capture and storage, why don't we go back and use the coal that we have? Because we have 250 years of it.
0: And then we've got one question from the front. If the man can raise his hand, you'll be uh, united with the microphone.
4: Thank you. Um, I have a company that employs uh, gas engineers. We're talking the talk of uh, moving to hydrogen. What, what is this going to mean for my business, um, what is this going to mean for our employers? I can guess that they'll be retraining. How will the government help
5: to fund that retraining? That was my question, thanks.
4: Okay.
0: Um, ben, I'll go to, to you first.
5: Yeah, no problem. Just to, to also reinforce the point that Jake makes, that you cannot underestimate the issue we currently have with the lack of specialisms in the civil service to be able to develop these technologies. I mean, I remember walking into Bayes three years ago. They didn't even have a hydrogen team. Nobody was doing anything on hydrogen. They then brought in a civil servant from elsewhere who was probably a grad working in DCMS for a bit, who had no background in it. You're in charge of hydrogen, okay, great. So we're trying to talk to them in Teesside. We produce 50% of all hydrogen produced in the UK. We've got engineers that have been doing it for 60, 70 years. We've got solutions, and they say, well, we're gonna do our own fact-finding, and we're gonna go on a stakeholder engagement around the country, and we're gonna have a conversation, and then we're gonna build up our own view. And three years later, they're still kind of doing that. And that's ultimately the problem, as Jake says, whether it's devolution or from industry. The answers are out there, but the civil service continue to have this idea that it's their answer or no answer, which is a major problem. And if you look back at some of the evidence that is now coming through, I mean, the Committee on Climate Change said that by 2021, electric vehicles, because electricity was going to solve everything, your average electric vehicle would cost £13,000 a year. I mean, where's that? But that's the evidence base that we're using. So I think fundamentally there's going to be a change in the way that we look at that agnostic technology. On those two points, though, on carbon capture, carbon capture very clearly to me is going to last a number of decades, but it's a transitional technology. Electrolyzers that can produce hydrogen using green forms of, of, of hydrogen, sorry, whether that's through solar, whether it's through offshore wind, or whether it's through nuclear. It's relatively small scale, and certainly if you're trying to baseload the gas grid, we just can't produce it in the volumes that we we would like to or need to today. So there has to be a transition. It protects existing industries. It allows for that technology to be developed. It gives certainty to the markets. We've got to keep coming back to that point private sector needs to develop these technologies. And what CCUS does is it allows... I mean, the cheapest way of making hydrogen is through steam methane reformers. Steam methane reformers emit a huge amount of carbon, not a very environmentally friendly way to produce hydrogen. But if you plug it into a carbon capture and storage facility that stops it from getting emitted into the atmosphere, and if you look at the Northern Endurance Partnership, where that's going to be shipped out three miles below uh, the North Sea into the oil cabins that were once depleted when we were doing oil and gas actually, we've got 150 years worth of capacity. Now, my idea is we don't need 150 years. We just need 20, 30 years to be allowed for that technology to make a difference. And then ultimately, CCUS probably will either no longer be needed or some of the CCUS companies, I'd be interested to get Will's view on this, is that you might actually be pumping carbon back out of the oil fields that you once filled up, because you'll start to use it as a commodity in the chemical process for other types of things like ammonia and various other bits and pieces. And when it comes back to the gentleman at the front about hydrogen boilers, it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, protecting businesses, large and small, for the future of their organisations. Now, my argument would be, with very little upskilling, you and your guys and women will be able to install a hydrogen boiler. And today, like I say, the Bosch boilers that are produced, and again, I'll say it again, there are others that are available, I'm sure, they are hydrogen ready. It's a bit like a HD TV. So when we all first bought our HD TVs, there was no such thing as a HD channel. But when they appeared, all of a sudden it just appeared on the TV. A lot of the hydrogen boilers are the same. You can install them. They can run on natural gas. And when you have the switch over, with a slight tweak to the burner, which is minimal, and I'm sure you and your team will have the expertise to do that with your eyes closed, you can go in and then retrofit. The final point I want to make is time is running out. So if we've got to replace 30 million boilers because we want to go to low carbon. If you actually work that back by 2050, you're replacing a boiler every minute of every hour of every day of every year up until 2030, 365 days a year. So again, we're already up to 2050. We're already up against it, which is why we need that timeline, because you start bringing it forward to 2035, 2030, and it's just impossible to meet without destroying livelihoods and destroying business. It
2: be good for your business.
5: Oh, yeah, you'll have lots of work up to 2050, trust me. You'll have to be recruiting more engineers.
0: Can you replace a boiler every minute? That's the question, yeah. It's a good slogan. Siobhan, you get to have the final word on this panel before I plug some more gin.
4: Last word, beautiful. Um, That is definitely going to keep you busy there in the front row. So two points to make, one on financing for SMEs. Great that you found that Carbon Trust loan. I think the point there is... There, there, there need to be options. There need to be a selection of options for financing, SME, transition, and we need to do a good job of communicating what they, those are, both the private sector and government. We're running a campaign called Net Zero Heroes that is uh, showcasing what our members are already doing in this space because, let's face it, we all learn those things from each other. And then on on training, you know, I think we actually haven't really touched on skills today, and that's going to be whole new set of apprenticeships it's going to be pointing young people at stem subjects much earlier than we are in areas where we need it it's going to be flexible skills training in your local fe colleges so that can happen for you in the next year Uh, and that is going to be how we're going to we, we have to answer what generation zero are asking us to do so that's a huge job
3: Thanks, and oh, Jake has asked if he could have the
2: final final words. So. <laughs> so you're you're going to have the final <laughs> word. Uh, Very quickly, on coal, we should absolutely be opening a metallurgical coal mine in Cumbria. It is insanity that that project has been blocked. It means that we're now importing metallurgical coal from China and the USA, who, by the way, told us not to open it, even though they've opened three themselves. And finally, what I think we've learned today. Is that what we really need? With a conservative government and a majority of 80, is civil service reform, and we need industry experts inserted into the most upper echelons of the civil service, and make sure that they can deliver on political priorities.
0: And with that, I want to thank our wonderful panel today for all the contributions, to Drax for hosting it, and to everyone for turning up. Just to say, all our events at conference are in this room. It's very simple. Now you know where it is. You can't say you got lost and didn't make it. And we will always have gin at the beginning of every session. So Fraser said to let you know, even if you just want to drop by for a pre-drink, 15 minutes for each panel, it will will be here. And to see our full agenda, which is just today and tomorrow, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash conference events and every time it is there um, so thank you very much.